1: Popular culture helps shape how audiences imagine biblical personalities in our contemporary moment. For many, Warner Solomon's portrait of Jesus fixes him as white. Others envision Moses as Charlton Heston because of Cecil B. DeMille's film The Ten Commandments, and the Jezebel stereotype is more well known than the biblical figure. This merging of cultural productions and scripture clearly intersect in the modern understanding of Hagar as a black woman. In reimagining Hagar, Blackness and Bible, published with Oxford University Press in 2019, Naisha Jr. sought to understand how Hagar became black and what purposes that served. Jr. lays out the primary sources and the divergent interpretive terrain where this identity makes sense to its readers. In our conversation, we discuss Hagar in the Hebrew Bible, New Testament and Muslim sources, categories of color, ethnicity, and race in ancient contexts, Biblical Interpretation in 19th Century U.S. Debates about Enslavement, Hagar in the Visual Arts, Music and Literature, Womenist Theology, and Being a Black Scholar in the Academy. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion, a channel on the New Books Network. Now, without any further delay, here's my conversation with Naisha Jr. about Reimagining Hagar, Blackness, and Bible. Welcome, Naisha. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Religion. I'm excited to talk to you about this wonderful book, Reimagining Hagar. How's everything going? Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much. Doing pretty well, all things considered.
1: Sure, sure. Before we get into the book, we always start with a little bit about our authors. But before we even do that, I do want to say that I am judging your book by its cover because it really is such a a cool and striking cover. I don't know. I, I mean, maybe you uh, can tell us a little bit about it later. But uh, I do want to say that it's uh, it's really a, a beautiful book, uh, but it's also, it's really accessible. And, you know, I'm not in biblical studies. Uh, so this was, from an outsider's perspective, really easy to follow. I felt like I, I got all the through lines um, and it's really a, a, a great topic. So uh, congratulations on, on the book. Thank you. To begin, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what brought you to uh, the study of religion? What brought you to uh, biblical studies more specifically? Uh, were there uh, moments or mentors that uh, kind of shaped you in terms of uh, thinking about the topics you're interested in, the approaches you take? Uh, wh- what was your kind of trajectory to become the scholar you are?
0: I would say I became the scholar I am largely due to my church community. I grew up in Florida on the Gulf Coast. And um, my grandmother's house was across the street from Greeta Bethlehem AME Church. AME is African Methodist Episcopal Church. And um, it was just a small country church and lots of families with lots of kids. And we grew up there. They instilled in me um, they're good Christian values, uh, along with lots of Black pride. Black is beautiful, and uh, encouraged us. So I remember teaching Bible study, um, singing in the choir, lots of service, and and lots of encouragement. So I think I learned about biblical texts there. Mm-hmm never thought about biblical scholarship, didn't really know what that was. My undergraduate major was international affairs. Uh, I had a whole career in public policy. And really, I'm a second career person. So it just wasn't working for me. I was bored. And one of my bosses asked, what would you do if you could do anything? And I said, well, I guess I'd probably study religion. So long story short, I had a quarter life crisis and uh, <laughs> ditched everything and started my MDiv at Pacific School of Religion. And Jeffrey Kwan was my first Hebrew Bible professor. He became my advisor and uh, started me on the path. So then I did my PhD at Princeton Seminary and the rest is history.
1: This is your second book. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, how this project began to emerge. You talk a a little bit, I think, in the, I forget if it was an intro or even before that, but how did this project start for you? And then how does it relate to your other scholarship?
0: Sure. So, yes, this is my second book, Reimagining Hagar, Blackness and Bible. And it started because of my students And I do discuss this in the book. I was teaching at Howard University at the School of Divinity. And one of the things that I do frequently is show students lots of images of biblical characters, and we talk about how that fits or doesn't fit with what they had in their imaginations. And for some reason, we were on Genesis, um, lots of slides on Abraham. And when we talked about Hagar, they were really insistent that Hagar was of course, a black woman. And it just started me thinking about that because frequently when we think about biblical characters due to Western European art, we often think of them as European or at least as pale. Um, So how could it be that they had such a a strong reaction to this particular figure. So it didn't come up with Moses or David or Miriam. um, But but this one, they were pretty insistent. So that just started me on the road to thinking about where do we get our ideas about particular biblical characters? And so this book is focused on... um, how Hagar Became Black, and what purpose does that serve?
1: And so, you know, your first book is on the idea of of womanist theology. Can you tell us a little bit about, in terms of the first book to the second book, I'm wondering if there's any kind of threads uh, you want to set up?
0: Yes, yeah, so the first book is An Introduction to Womanist Biblical Interpretation one of the things I talk about in the book is how frequently people lump together work that is womanist theology, womanist ethics, womanist homiletics, womanist biblical studies, um, that people think of it usually as all being part of the same bucket. So I would say it's, it's looking at womanist approaches in a variety of fields, but specifically trying to get at womanist approaches in biblical studies. For me, the connection between book one and book two is the same question about, I wonder how we got here. So in the first book I talk about in interviews and conversations Frequently, people would assume that I was a womanist. And I would say, why would you think that? And they would usually stammer and not say anything (laughs) in response because what they were going to say is, well, I thought all you black women had some kind of conference and sent out a memo saying that all black women were womanists now. So I thought I was being clever by assuming that you were, and now maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. So the the first book came about because, honestly, I realized that there was, there was a lot of confusion about womanism and specifically about what that might look like in biblical studies. So I think the the through line there is really curiosity, um, and trying to understand where are people getting these ideas from and how does that show up in biblical studies?
1: Yeah, it's great. And, um, the way you explain it now really made me think about, uh, in both books, it's really this kind of genealogy, uh, the way you phrase it, right? How do we get here? So, uh, in this book, of course, you 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 start from the beginning, so to speak, in terms of thinking about uh, primary sources and um, kind of the scriptural context in in an ancient context. Can you talk a little bit about how categories of, of color, ethnicity, race operate in the ancient context in which uh, these scriptures were were formed? What purposes did those kind of classifications serve their authors? And then what do biblical texts say about blackness in general before we get to Hagar in particular?
0: Great question. There's so much here. And this is <laughs> this is one of the difficulties I had with this book is that everything led to lots of other material. So yeah. In the book, I tried really, really hard just to focus on Hagar because I didn't, the book wasn't supposed to be blackness and Bible. It really was supposed to be just about Hagar and, and engaging those issues. But um, the way I usually explain it is that ancient people certainly had understandings of difference. And so they understood that there were people who were different. Um, And those differences ran along lots of different lines that we might still recognize today. So they understood that some people spoke a different language. Um, Some people worshipped different gods, had different food culture or food taboos. So things that they ate or didn't eat uh, and the preparation of their food. clothing skin color, hair texture, eye color, all of those things that we recognize, the ancients did as well. They didn't have the same sense of race as a biological category that we do. So when we think about blackness, um, and Gay Byron, New Testament scholar at Howard University, has a great work where she talks about a lot of the different ways that we see blackness in early Christian literature. But one of the things that's um, that makes this all very muddled is that blackness can be something that's just about skin color. It can also be used metaphorically. It can be used geographically. So frequently when people are talking about blackness, you have to stop and understand how they're using it in a particular context. So my argument is not that Hagar was Black. So in the text, she's an Egyptian woman, which is her uh, difference from Sarah and Abraham. But I'm not saying that she was or that we know what she looked like um, or had any sense of how physically she may have been different than uh, those others who were part of their household really i'm talking about blackness in later periods in the us when particularly black americans understand hagar as relating to their experiences of blackness
1: yeah and you you do this really well you kind of uh, walk us through the whole process so um so the first chapter in the book um you talk about some of these sources you talk about the you know the limited things that are that are said about hagar in the hebrew bible and the new testament Um, Even uh, you discuss some Muslim sources. So for those that are unfamiliar with these kind of primary sources, can you can you just tell us a little bit of uh, what they tell us about Hagar? What are what are the types of characteristics uh, or identities that are attributed to her in these uh, primary sources?
0: Yes. So Hagar appears in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament in Genesis 16 and in Genesis 21, Largely there, we are focused most of the time on Abraham and Sarah. So, um, some folks are more familiar with, uh, Abraham, Sarah saga and skip over Hagar. In brief, Sarah is Abraham's wife and she is unable to bear children. And she has a slave woman, Hagar. And she is described as Egyptian in the text, as I mentioned. The text doesn't explain how she came to be enslaved or um, how she arrived as part of their household. Some make connections perhaps with Genesis 12, but the, the text doesn't explain why. So in the text, Sarah comes up with a scheme because she's unable to have children and suggests that Hagar serve as a surrogate. And so she gives Hagar to Abram. I should say um, in Genesis 16, it's Sarai and Abram and their names are changed later. And then it's Sarah and Abraham, but just to make it easy, I'll say Sarah and Abraham. So um, Hagar conceives She, um, according to Sarah, looks with contempt on Sarah, and uh, Abraham says, listen, that's between you guys, and Hagar runs away. She has a theophany in the wilderness, and so she has an experience of the divine, and an angel talks to her and tells her to return back to her mistress and to submit to her. But there also comes a promise that the Lord will multiply her offspring. And so she goes back and has a son named Ishmael. So Hagar is Sarah's enslaved woman. Sarah gives her to Abraham to serve as a surrogate. And so Hagar and Abraham together have a child named Ishmael. So skipping forward to Genesis 21, now Sarah has had a child. So Sarah and Abraham together have Isaac. And it's Hagar and Abraham have Ishmael. So at a party for Isaac, a weaning um, eight-day-old party when he is circumcised, um, Sarah is... Uh, Sarah laughs and is shocked that she would be able to have a son for Abraham in his old age. So at his weaning, we don't know how much time elapses, probably years, given how long people probably breastfed back in the day. Uh, They have a big party for for Isaac at his weaning, and Sarah sees Ishmael, doing something with Isaac. It's not entirely clear what is happening in that particular verse. So Sarah says to Abraham, listen, you need to kick her out, her and this kid, because I don't want anything interfering with Isaac and his inheritance. Abraham expresses some distress about this. God says, it's okay. Don't, don't sweat it. And so the next day, Abraham expels Hagar and Ishmael with uh, bread and water, and they wander in the wilderness. Also here, she's afraid that the child is going to die, but has a theophany, and God provides, um, and so she sees that there's a well of water. And then uh, God is with Ishmael, and he grows up, and his mother gets a wife for him. Pretty much that's her story. We don't really hear about her, um, what happens to her, how they manage things. In the New Testament, she shows up in Galatians, and she also is in the Quran, although not by name. So um, there are also Islamic texts that talk about uh, Ibrahim and uh, Ishmael, and um they don't, they don't express explicitly what happens, but the story of Genesis 22, where we have the binding of Isaac, is also in the Quran, and there is traditionally understood to be Ishmael, who is the one who is nearly sacrificed.
1: Now, um, the, the crux of the book is really on an American context. And in the first kind of analysis, you look at um, Hagar in the context of 19th century pro um, and anti-slavery literature in the U.S. In, in this context, who, who are these interpreters? How do they use biblical texts? How do they understand issues of enslavement, uh, both in the literary, but then also in a social context, um, and their, their interrelationship? Um, and how does, how does Hagar fit into, into these narratives?
0: Sure. So this is, um, this is a chapter where I was looking for things and, and not finding them. And then realizing that that was just, that was also part of the research. That was part of the story that I needed to tell. Mm -hmm. So, looking at um, 19th and early 20th century interpreters, one of the things that I found when I was looking um, particularly at pro and anti slavery writers in the US was I was anticipating that. Hagar would be one of the texts that they would mention. So unlike today, uh, in the 19th century and earlier on in the history of the U.S., many more people were uh, familiar with the Bible. So biblical literacy was much higher than what we, what we have today. Um, the Bible was one of the few texts that people might own. Uh, in a period when many people did not own books, and it would be one of the books that people would use when learning to read, even. So I was anticipating that in talking about uh, pro- and anti-slavery arguments that Hagar would show up in those texts. And what I found was she generally didn't. And I was curious about why this might be the case. So long story short, Hagar is as I mentioned, discussed as Egyptian and that's clear in Genesis 16. And what I realize is that these interpreters did not understand Egypt as we might today well it depends That's another story. Hmm. Um, it did not understand Egypt to be part of Africa So in in thinking of her as Egyptian, they were not, Necessarily thinking of her as some might say black African, so we see this even today when um, some folks will talk about sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle East and Northern Africa, um, and trying to uh, geographically bound off some areas and some peoples from others. So in these texts, they they engage biblical texts in lots of different ways and talking about enslavement. But they don't talk about Hagar largely because they don't think of her enslavement and they don't think of her Egyptianness as relating to any um, Black African origins.
1: How do they deal with the issue of enslavement in the Americas. Can you, can you tell us a little bit of what, what is the justification, the biblical justification?
0: Sure. So it, they, they use text in, uh, lots of creative ways. In some senses, um, the argument is if father Abraham could enslave people, certainly we can. Um, the biblical text doesn't seem to have any problems with enslavement um seems to assume a society in which some people are enslaved so what's the problem if it's if it's good enough for father abraham it's good enough for us um others on the other side think that this type of enslavement is a different kind um so for example even in thinking about hagar some interpreters talked about her as um more like a lady's maid. So someone who was in service, but not someone that you might think of, uh, in terms of us chattel slavery. So the thinking was, if this is someone that Sarah is choosing to serve as a surrogate, certainly she didn't just wander out in the fields and pick any old body. Um, this must have been someone who was uh, of a very high status in order to serve in that capacity so this was um, this was a lot of work to figure out that the idea of Hagar as Egyptian was not enough to for most interpreters to make any connections between her experience and the experience of. Uh, the enslaved in the U.S.
1: So where we do start to see the emergence of Hagar as a black woman, which comes up in the chapter you call Aunt Hagar, and it's primarily uh, through cultural production rather than, than some sort of specific uh, biblical uh, interpretation. So you give us lots of examples here, So, but maybe you can just walk us through, through some of them, um, where we find Hagar in, you, you look at the visual arts, you look at music, you look at literature. So what are some of these examples? And then uh, can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between uh, what we might think of as a, a, a biblical Hagar and then this cultural production?
0: Sure. So in this chapter, I talk a lot about the work of Dolores Williams, a womanist theologian. She um, was at Union Theological Seminary, And in her book, Sisters in the Wilderness, um, she deals with the figure of Hagar and connects her to the experiences of African American women. And so I start from that particular point and then talk about depictions of Hagar as a Black woman in art, in music, and in literature. So Hagar does become a popular. Um, figure. But as I later point out, I don't think that all of these instances are necessarily referring to a biblical Hagar. So the connections that uh, Williams and others make, I think that that relates to a different understanding of Hagar. So for example, um, Hagar is used in, by a sculptor Edmonia Lewis, who's an African-American and Native American sculptor. And she has a sculpture that's an image of Hagar, but really the only thing that gives it away. So her hair texture is, is curly. The hair is a little curly. um, but because it's marble, there's no coloring and you see an overturned jar. So the overturned jar is really the connection that's being made with Hagar um, and the title. So this is definitely a biblical Hagar, but it's unclear really the statement that she's making in terms of her ethnicity. I talk about other representations. Um, so, for example, there's Hagar in music. Music there's a song um, that mentions a Hagar figure and it mentions an Aunt Hagar's blues. So this is an example where we have a Hagar figure who's definitely a black woman who's engaged in music and song, but there's really no connection between her and the biblical Hagar. So I give a lot of different examples, some where I think that there's more of a connection that the artist or writer or musician is making a connection with biblical texts. And then other examples where I think they're using the name Hagar, but not necessarily connecting that with the Hagar in the Bible. So part of what I'm trying to tease out is this idea that there are at least two, I argue for two, two different strands that get us to the idea of a black Hagar.
1: Um, the other thing you do in this chapter, if I remember correctly, you also uh, point out, which I, I maybe listeners will want to know, is that uh, many of the representations of Hagar uh, prior to really the, the contemporary or the modern period were European uh, looking, right? In, in the sense that they, they weren't characterized as black or as Egyptian, whatever that might be look like right perhaps orientalist tropes Um, but a lot of them were uh, in the same way that Jesus is often depicted as as white kind of euro lots of the the cultural productions of Hagar were also in the same vein
0: yes exactly so one of the things that I try to do is to help the reader to understand that if perhaps you are familiar with this idea of Hagar as a black woman that that is not always how she has been understood. So for example, in um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's work, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, there's also an Aunt Hagar. There is one of the first instances where we see a Black woman who's Hagar. But in other literature, we don't see Hagar as a Black woman but rather as someone who is European. Um, She may be uh, thought of, as you mentioned, Orientalist tropes, uh, hot-blooded, wild and untamed, dark, um, are things that people use in talking about her. But in some of the literature that we see, they're not assuming that this is a Black woman or someone of African origins. But still, as again, many people think of other biblical characters, someone who is of European descent.
1: Now, um, you uh, in the in the next chapter, which is entitled uh, "Black Hagar," you you look at um, the role of contemporary scholarship and theology in popularizing uh, the biblical uh, Black Hagar and the this kind of merging or uh, of these various kind of strains. Or interpretations and uh, key to this, it, a lot of it is is womenist theology. Um, you you mentioned Dolores Williams already, but you also look at uh, Renita Weems' work. Maybe we could start there. I know you do much uh, a lot of other stuff in that chapter as well, but perhaps um, that would be a place to start in the sense of how how does blackness relate to quote unquote womenist interpretation, and then how does Hagar factor into Weems and Williams, uh, interpretations.
0: Sure. So part of it is that, um, scholars in classics and in what comes to be biblical studies talked about the importance of Arabia and Africa when we talk about the ancient Near East. And so some of that scholarship was, again, the idea was not to identify these are black people, but rather to say you have to pay attention to this larger context and you can't act as if Africa does not exist when we are talking about um, the ancient Near East. So some of these scholars um, were working through this kind of thing and Hagar is one of the figures that they pointed to in noting that this is an Egyptian woman. So the way this all comes together is uh, there's an Aunt Hagar figure that is part of African-American literature, culture. There's also this idea of a biblical Hagar as a Black woman, and the two, I think, become fused together into one Black Hagar. So one of the places that we see this, uh, Renita Weems is a biblical scholar, and her book, "Justice Sister Way, A Womanist Vision of Women's Relationships in the Bible, she takes up this idea of Hagar and looks at her and Sarah. And in looking at this figure, you see the issue of enslavement and relationships between black and white women, and so that's one of the ways that people start to link this idea of Hagar as a black woman.
1: So if these interpreters are uh, establishing this kind of connection between uh, the kind of cultural tradition of Hagar and they're connecting it to the, the biblical figure, what, what problems are inherent in that? Is there a problem with kind of connecting the Uh, these two traditions into a singular figure of Hagar?
0: Yes, I think so. So um, I think that there are concerns uh, when people make this kind of appropriation of Hagar as a Black woman. Um, One of the things that's important to note is that it, it was a different type of enslavement whatever was going on in the ancient world is not what we experienced in the U S they're different forms. Also notice that there are very big differences between the experience of black women in the U S and the experiences of Hagar. So even though there are writers that make these connections, part of what I talk about in this chapter on black Hagar is that if you read very closely, it starts to break down. So for example, um, nowhere does the text say that Hagar wanted children. There are many other women in the Bible who want children, pray for children, beg for children, uh, negotiate to try to get children. It doesn't say that Hagar wanted a child. Um, This would be also important to notice that the, in her theophany in Genesis 16, the angel tells her to return. So the angel tells her to return and submit to her mistress. Previously in the text, it explained that Sarah was abusing Hagar. It doesn't specify whether it was physical, verbal, psychological, or otherwise. But this is a text where the divine tells her, an enslaved woman, to return back to her situation. So how we might think about that as not liberative, but dangerous. Um, Some make the argument that in Genesis 21, we have a situation in which Hagar is like a black woman's single mother, but the context is very different. She's not getting a divorce from Abraham. She's being expelled into the wilderness with the equivalent of basically, you know, a sandwich and a bottle of water. So this is not a, um, a U.S. context where we are talking about rights, where we are talking about legal systems. Um, so to be outside of the household, outside of the familias into the wilderness means she's basically uh, being given a death sentence. So one of the things that I try to raise is this concern about too easily making these connections. Um, while I understand the impulse to want to see ourselves reflected in biblical texts, I think a deeper reading causes us to question whether or not those kinds of associations are benefiting us in the ways that we might hope. So I am, um, I try to very respectfully engage, for example, Dolores Williams' work in Sisters in the Wilderness and and, um, acknowledge her scholarship, acknowledge how uh, important she is to the field. But then also to go further and talk about how this cultural Aunt Hagar um, lineage has not been, I don't feel, adequately acknowledged because it's been conflated with this idea of a biblical black Hagar.
1: That's a good uh, segue to some of the, the challenges you point to in the, you read a very short epilogue, and I think it kind of provides an opportunity to think about scholarship on blackness. And, you know, as somebody who follows you on Twitter, I know that you uh, regularly support and amplify the work of black scholars, but also of scholarship on, on blackness, and you use this hashtag Black A R S B L. And there's also been recently this hashtag Black and Ivory that talks about the experiences of of being a black academic. So more specifically in, in biblical studies, but then also more broadly in the terms of the academy, what would you say are the, the challenges of of writing or working on issues related to race and even gender, specifically in, in biblical interpretation, but but in the humanities or at least religious studies more broadly.
0: Deep sigh. <laughs> there, there's a lot. Um, so, uh, first, I will say the hashtag is B-L-K-A-A-R-S-B-L. If folks are on Twitter, um, that's one place where I try to amplify work by Black scholars. Uh, in religion broadly, I will say that um, for me, the work that I do involves race because these are the questions that I have so i'm I'm fortunate to be able to do work that's important to me that's meaningful to me, and um, I'm grateful for that. I will say that it is frequently the case that uh, black scholars who do work on race are often pigeonholed. So people think that that's quote unquote, all they can do. Um, so, uh, sometimes I've had to explain to people, yes, I have a PhD. Yes, I have a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary. Yes, my PhD is in Old Testament, Yes, I know Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and Syriac. And yes, I am a, a fully fledged biblical scholar. And I also do work on race and more contemporary work. Um, frequently people uh, will think unless you are a, a white dude in chinos with a blue blazer doing quote unquote, traditional philological work, then you're not a real biblical scholar. Um, so I, that's that very much continues to be the case. Um, uh, folks have thought oh, that I'm doing all of this in, in English translation, that my degree is in literature or other kinds of things. Um, so if you're a Black scholar doing work on race, people often uh, will question if you're a real scholar doing real scholarship. It is also the case that if you are not a black scholar talking about black folks, um, people will question why that might be the case. So is that for likes and retweets? Is that because you think it's hot or trendy? Um, And those scholars usually don't get the same kinds of questions but uh, often are applauded for being willing to even uh, engage questions of race and ethnicity.
1: Well, um, it sounds exhausting. So I'm sorry that that is the way things are at the moment. But perhaps that could help us think about what might be productive ways, both as scholars, but also through our scholarship collectively, how, how can we continue to focus on Blackness, Black interpreters in a biblical context, or in, in religious studies more, more generally. How can we move forward in a productive way?
0: I think one of the ways we can move forward productively, uh, especially in biblical studies, is to understand that people approach this work in, in lots of different ways. So um, uh, I've had people question if what I'm doing counts as biblical scholarship, because it doesn't look like scholarship the way someone else does it. It doesn't engage the same sources. It doesn't ask the same questions. And what I say is, but isn't that exciting? To think about new questions, new ways of interpreting, new... new ways of engaging other communities and the ways that they read biblical texts. So I think for me, um, in some ways I think of the work I do now more as reception history within biblical studies. Um, But I still think of it as biblical studies, just not the same way we've been doing things. So I would hope that, more scholars are open to other kinds of work, other kinds of questions um, that they will read and engage and review and cite this scholarship, not just the same cast of characters, uh, the same folks they went to graduate school with. And also take the time to understand why it might be useful. So one of the questions I do, at least pre corona did uh, lots of speaking engagements at different colleges and universities and talk about my work. And there is inevitably a white dude who raises his hand and says something to the effect of, why should I care? Like, why should I be bothered? Um, this isn't mainstream or traditional or, you know, You're not wearing a blue blazer. Why should this matter? Uh, And what I say is, well, first, first, I think you should buy the book. And then I think you should read the book. And then I think you can answer that question yourself. So I would hope that I would hope that more scholars are open to engaging different kinds of questions and see where it goes from there. I'm not saying that everybody needs to do work the way I do it, but I do think that what I'm offering is a contribution to the field. And so all I'm asking is for other scholars to take the time to, again, uh, buy, read, engage, cite, review, um, discuss, and and let's see. Let's see if there's something here that, that might be important, that might be helpful, um, that might be a different way of of engaging these texts.
1: Yeah, and uh, th- I, I guess this would be a good point also to say that I think uh, teach, uh, teach this work, and especially uh, this book, I think would really uh, work well in a lot of classes, um, not only because of the kind of uh, the kind of tightness of the genealogy that you present, but it, it's also uh, relatively short, so it could easily fit into uh, you know, some sort of section into a larger uh, class. Um, so I hope I hope people will get the book and and read it, and then uh, also teach it in their their classes. Um, so so thank you in general for for a great uh, book, and, and thanks for making the time. Um, before I let you go, I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit about uh, things you have uh, in terms of your scholarship happening now. I know you have another book out. You tell us about that, uh, but also some of the things that perhaps are. A little further afield, what we what we can uh, keep our fingers crossed and and hope for.
0: Yes, so I have a new book out. It is co-authored with Jeremy Skipper, who's my colleague at Temple University in the Department of Religion, and the book is called Black Samson: The Untold Story of an American Icon. So in Black Samson, we talk about how the figure of Samson is used in the US and how Samson is part of different understandings of strategies of engaging questions of race. So that book is out now and less expensive than Reimagining Hagar. Um, So you can find that wherever you uh, buy books. It's also an e-book and it is an audiobook. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, So you can check that out. Um, so now that uh, all of these are done, I'm turning my attention to a new project on 19th century evangelist Jerina Lee. And this year I'll be a research associate at Harvard Divinity School in their Women's Studies and Religion program. Uh, due to COVID, I'll be still here in Philadelphia, but I'll be part of that program and working on that project.
1: Great. Well, good luck. And uh, I, hope, I hope folks will check out your, your first book and, and your other new book. Uh, and uh, good luck with your, your next project.
0: Thank you so much. All my information is available on my website. It's naishajunior.com, N Y A S H A J U N I O R.com. Great.
1: Thanks, Naisha. Thank you. That was my conversation with Naisha Jr. about reimagining Hagar, Blackness and Bible, published with Oxford University Press in 2019. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.